I want to speak this morning about a rediscovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a gospel. It is one gospel. Paul was very bold. He called it my gospel. Three times Paul said, according to my gospel. That's an extremely bold statement. And so I grew up in the church. And, you know, you grow up in the church, you know the Bible, you think you know the Bible. And then you start reading the Bible. You're like, I have no idea, actually, about the Bible. And that started to happen to me once I, I came back to the Lord. And I started to discover that there were things in my heart that I just didn't know about, obviously sin issues and all of that, but just stuff I struggled with in my relationship with the Lord. In the beginning of the year, we spoke about building a church empowered to engage our city. And one of the things that is core to that is that we need to have an absolute clarity on the gospel. If I went around you and said, what's the gospel? Many people say, Jesus saves me from my sin. That's true, but it's so much more than that. So I'm not trying to complicate something that is profoundly simple. Simple doesn't mean it's not powerful. It is profoundly simple, but it's profoundly powerful. But Paul, as one of the great scholars and one of the greatest minds, I think, that ever was, wrote 13 epistles to explain things to people who were trapped in their, actually, their relationship with the Lord. So my heart for this series is to equip believers with like a spiritual surety, an understanding, a deep understanding of what the gospel is. Not so much that, because I've preached the gospel many times, Uh, Pat Dempsey used to say, if I cut Clayton, he's going to bleed the gospel, which is great. But I find often people leave going, that was a great message, that was a great, oh, gospel's wonderful, I feel good. But it doesn't go right through to the heart where it pierces them to the point that it changes the way they pray. It changes the way they relate to God. It changes the way they think. It changes the way they relate to people. That's the gospel going in. And so we need to be rooted, deeply rooted in the gospel until it changes everything about us. So that even it's the gospel that will cause when people react at you that you don't react back. It's actually the gospel. It's the clarity that which we see the gospel that changes really everything. And so I want to uh, do that a little bit this morning. We're going to go on a series now. I know I'm being away for two weeks, so I mean, we're going to have to remember. And everyone says, yeah, I'll remember when you get back. And then I'll say, who remembers two weeks ago? People's like, nope, no clue. But I want to start, and we're going to go into it. So I say this for the theologians, for the doctrine-based people in the room. It's impossible to say everything about this issue in one week. So I may leave some things hanging maybe on purpose, because I want people to begin to think and begin to investigate their own heart. Because even though I grew up in the church, I found when I prayed, who knows, you can hear something, and then you begin to pray, and the first little while you deal with guilt. It's like you're praying to make, you know, what is it like really? How am I really with God? Am I actually secure in God? What, what is actually expected of me, not expected of me? What is given, what's not? All those things come up in the heart when you pray or sometimes when you worship. Now, thank the Lord that doesn't happen to me anymore because I, inve- I studied this for five years, what I'm about to talk to you today. It'll probably take you a couple months. It just took me a lot longer. I studied it because I wanted to know what's actually happened and where do I stand And it changed my world. It really changed my world. Even though I grew up in the church, even though I grew up with seeing signs and wonders, I grew when I was a child, I saw a person get out of a wheelchair and we saw the legs come out. It's just crazy things. But it didn't give me something deep in my heart where I knew I'm rooted in Christ. Yeah? 
So we're going to go on a little bit of a journey this morning. So first thing I'm going to talk about is the law and the gospel. We cannot touch the gospel without having some understanding of law versus grace. This is where we're going to teach. And we all get, yay, we love the word, right? Yay, wonderful, we love the word. There's, everyone says law, everyone thinks what? The law of Moses, right? There's different types of law, and moral law is one of them. The law of sin is one of them. And um, the other one, you can throw it up, is obviously the Mosaic law. They're very different. And, well, they actually, some of them are similar, but they're different. And it's important for us to understand what that means. Because until we understand our relationship with the law, and what that means, and how that works, and what's happened, you actually won't be free. Who wants to be free? Really free. Great. Moral law, I'll explain it briefly, is every person, saved and unsaved, born on the earth, they're born with a penalty of death over them because of what Adam did, yeah? But every person has still a conscience. Even though their conscience hasn't been made alive to God and is not empowered by the Spirit, they still have a conscience. They still have a general sense of right and wrong. And sometimes it's society that dictates what that is. Let me explain. Romans 2 verse 14 to 15 says this, For when the Gentiles, who are Gentiles representing? Unsaved people, yeah? For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, because they weren't Jewish at the time, by nature do the things in the law. By nature, by the nature that they're born with. Even though it's a sin nature, they, by nature they still have a moral fiber. They still have a moral code. Yes? Yes. Okay, great. Who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, although these not having the law are a law, I'm a, and I'll say law and law. That's because my accent is confused. And sometimes I remember to say it your way, sometimes the old way though you can forgive me, but it's the same word. Who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law. These, although not having the law, are law to themselves. Even though they don't have it, technically, they, weren't, they didn't have the law of God through Moses, they did some of these things naturally. So there was like a law in their heart, in a sense, like a moral law, okay? Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience. So they have a conscience. People have conscience. Their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts accusing or excusing them. What is that? A person grows up in a certain culture and an environment. Who remembers George, I think it was George Orwell, Lord of the Flies? That was people left to their own devices as children. Who, who wrote it? Well, that guy. Okay. <laughs> children left to their own devices completely governed by sin nature and it just gets worse and worse and worse. That was the point of that movie. And physically they got dirtier and dirtier. It's a beautiful picture. But what happens is we get born on the earth and we have a moral fiber, a moral law, and even if you're unsaved, we have that. But then what happens is society begins to dictate that's okay. And depends where you're born on the earth, your moral law is taught to you. So if you were born in a society where you're like, I know it sounds crazy, but for an extreme case, where murder was okay, you would in your heart as a child be like, it doesn't feel right. Eventually, if your entire society is saying that that's okay, your thoughts will accuse or excuse. Does that make sense? You will eventually say, no, that's fine. And you will feel nothing about it. Yeah? That's fact. We know that from the world. So when society loses its moral law, the Bible says that the conscience of man can be seared as with a hot iron. It can be seared. It can be so burnt that the basic moral fiber of a person, unsaved, 
begins to dissipate, begins to disappear. Because the funny thing about moral law is this, and we all have it, the funny thing about moral law is that they are not empowered to live according to it. They're not. They're not empowered to do it. So they try to do the right thing. That's why people who are really disciplined, they're like, well, I live a good life, therefore I go to heaven. Because they're trying so hard to live up to some sense of moral law. We're going to read a lot of scripture this morning, which you're all so excited about, which I love. It's wonderful. Romans 7, verse 21, it says, I find then a law that is evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. That's the moral law. I will to do good. But there's another law that's present with me, and that's the law of sin. Another way to talk about the law of sin is the sin nature. It's actually the same thing. For I delight in the law of God, so this is even to a person who is now saved, according to the inward man, but I see another law within my members waging against the law of my mind. Romans 7 calls moral law the law of my mind. I know right and wrong. And bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. That's the sin nature. So there's a struggle and a battle. Okay? Which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. With the flesh, I serve the law of sin. So a person who is not saved is not empowered to kind of to serve not God's law like Moses, we'll get into that, but something of who God is in the earth. They're not empowered, so there's a constant struggle. Romans 7 says it this way in the Passion. I enjoy reading the Passion. I don't see it as an accurate translation that I would go to for theology, but sometimes they put things really well. Who's read the Passion? I encourage you to get it. It's really great. It says this. I'm going to read a good portion to you. 7 verse 18. It says, For I know that nothing good lives within the flesh of my fallen humanity. That makes sense. It's easier to understand. The longings to do what is right are within me, but the willpower is not enough to accomplish it. It's very cool. My lofty desires to do what is good are dashed when I do the things I want to avoid. So if my behavior contradicts my desires to do good, I must conclude that it's not my true identity, because now it's talking about a saved person. Because when you get born again, that's who you really are. That's your true identity. That's the person God made you in Christ. So if my, I must conclude that it's not my true identity doing it, but the unwelcome intruder of sin, hindering me from being who I really am. Isn't that a cool way to put it? And it says, through my experience of this principle, I discover that even when I want to do good, evil is ready to sabotage me. Truly deep within my true identity, I love to do what pleases God. But as a CERN, I discern another power operating in my humanity, waging a war against the moral principles of my conscience and bringing me into captivity as a prisoner of the law, to the law of sin. This unwelcome intruder in my humanity. What an agonizing situation I am in. I love the guy who wrote this. What an agonizing situation I am in. So who has the power to rescue this miserable man from the unwelcome intruder of sin and death? I give all my thanks to God for his mighty power has finally provided a way out through our Lord Jesus, the Anointed One. So if left to myself... The flesh, in a sense, naturally is aligned with the law of sin, the sin nature. That's obvious. But now my renewed mind, interesting. How do you be transformed? By the renewing of the mind. mind. But my renewed mind is fixed on and submitted to God's principles. Then you have the law of sin, which is the sin nature. Then you have the Mosaic law. 
The Mosaic law, the law of Moses, the law of Scripture in the Old Testament, is not a forever covenant. It has a point A and it has a point B. But it was as if, this is a very simplistic, for the scholars, you're going to like reel a little bit when I say this, but it's like God wrote the moral law down. He took the moral law and he put it on paper. Obviously, he expanded it for Israel with food and nation issues. But he took the moral law and said, this is actually what it is. And he defined it. Okay? So, now we're going to zoom out. We're going to go back and forth, and then we're going to get to some really good news. It's really good news. Let's look at, like, almost if you looked at the earth from outside, like a cosmic view of the love story of God. The Bible says that God has loved us with an everlasting love. means he loved us before the creation of the world. Have you ever considered that? He loved us before the world was. The Bible also says that the lamb was slain at the foundation of the world. So Jesus was slain. He wasn't technically, like according to this, but he's outside of time. He was, everything was already provided before the world was at the foundation of the world, which is very important. Why? Because, friends, God desires a family that loves him out of their heart. It's why the law of Moses could never work. When they asked Jesus, what is the, what is the greatest command? Command. It's another word for law. Command. To love the Lord your God. The law of Moses forced behavior and love by a command. So it undoes itself, which I'll explain later. Because every time there's a command, it actually entices you to sin. So it became impossible. It worked against itself. So in order for love to exist, genuine love, choice has to exist. I cannot force my wife to love me. I was going to say Josh, but (laughs) I cannot force my wife to love me. She does by choice. If I forced her, you have to. It's not genuine love, right? So God put two trees in the garden. God put two trees in the garden because love is his greatest desire. The Bible says these three remain, love, faith, hope, and love, right? But the greatest is love. Why? Because faith and hope will disappear when he comes back. You don't need faith for the unseen when you see now clearly. You don't need hope for what now you have. But love is God. Love is heaven. Love is. So it never leaves. So God puts two trees in the garden and gives a command. Do not. And like a two-year-old, oh, that's what I want to do. Okay? That's exactly what happened. Why? Choice has to exist for love to be real. That's why he already provided something before that whole process started, friends. It's an incredible love story. Then as we know, Romans 5 says that death entered through sin. The wages of sin is? Death. So every person is born with a sin, with inherent sin within them, like a disease. And they follow that natural nature. Every time they follow that nature, that's why you cannot get upset with the world and people doing crazy things. They're following a nature within them. That's all they're doing, is just doing what comes natural. They don't need another protest, they need born again. They need Jesus Christ. So what happens is death enters through sin, and it didn't enter from within. Hello. It entered from partnering with a deceiver from without. It didn't enter from within man. It came from outside. And then this bent. This bent the nature of man. The spirit died. That's our fellowship with God. And it bent God's image actually in man. It actually did. You're still made in God's image, but it's, a, it's not his original intention. It's like his image is bent in man. And they cannot have fellowship. We cannot have access So then from Adam to Moses, right, there was no law given. There was no law given 
from Adam to Moses. And in that time period, Abraham comes. Very important. Abraham was not a Jewish or Hebrew person. He was a man that lived in Iraq, modern day, an Iraqi man worshipping moons and stars and idols and created things. And God comes to him and says, hey, I want to make you righteous. Do you believe in me? Yeah. Righteous. By faith, no law had been given. And he changed his name from Abram to Abra. Ham, the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which stands for grace. Hey. And the Bible says in Galatians that our gospel was given in advance to Abraham. Huh. I'm going ahead of myself. Then comes the law of Moses. Friends, the law of Moses had to come. People say, why did it come? It had to come. Everyone's ever studied this. I studied this out because there was something in me that didn't really understand. And it was very offensive. If you've been raised in the church, you're about to be offended. I'm not saying you have to do it to this degree, but I, I went, they used to call me John Nash. I went a little funny. I wrote certain portions of books on the Bible on the wall in my bedroom, covered my bedroom with strings. Because I was like, God, it cannot be so true. It cannot be so good when we discover. And I would pace back and forth weeping, saying, God, show me. I don't understand and if I could just give you a little bit of that today to start so we can learn the gospel for the coming series. What did the law come to do? You know, friends, who knows God doesn't have favorites? Yeah? I think he does, my wife. She prays for things and they happen. So now I don't, I say, babe, you need to do this. You need to pray for this. <laughs> but, but really he doesn't, but yet he treats people different. He never changes, but he treats Moses different than he treated Abraham. If Moses lied to Pharaoh about his sister, Abraham lied to Pharaoh about his wife, told him his sister. His son did the same thing. Twice. Both of them twice. And both times they got wealthy. They actually got wealthier under grace. If Moses did it, they would have been killed under law. Does God prefer the one to the other? No. Different covenant. God never changes. He relates to people different based on the covenant that he has with them of the terms which he determines, not you, not me. And we are not under the old covenant. Very important to understand, friends. Somebody once told me like this, they said, most Christians live with a mixture of the old and new covenant. And the Bible says when you get saved, you're made a new creation, a new creature. That word is a new species on the earth. What happens when you mix two species? You have a monster. And many Christians live with a monster inside of them, half guilty, half happy. It's like a guilty cycle that they go through. Today, we're going to destroy that with theology. Not with feeling, theology, with doctrine. So that it stays dead. So what did the law come to do? It had to come. The law came to reveal God's nature, who he actually is. It defined a moral law, but it came to reveal his nature. It came to reveal that he's completely set apart, perfect and different from man. He is that without thinking about it. He just is. The law came and showed God's demand for righteousness. Not because he's mean. Not because he wants to beat you. Not because any of those things that we think. Because he so desires fellowship, but he cannot deny his own integrity and fellowship with sin. Why? Not because he's proud. If God denied his integrity this much, we would all cease. 
because it's the integrity of God's word and the integrity of God's command that keeps the waters on the earth where they are, that keeps breath in our lungs, friends. We've got to understand that. He could not deny himself, but he wants relationships. So he gives the law. It's that this incredible demand for righteousness. That's the demand. You want fellowship with me? That's the demand. And then why else? The Lord did not empower them to live up to that demand. The law was designed to bring people to their knees to recognize that they cannot do it. That's what it was designed to do. That's why when the Pharisees went and changed it and made it more easier to live out and more livable, Jesus didn't like that so much. Because the law was supposed to say, we cannot, we need a rescuer. We need a savior. When you change it and make it livable and do it in such a way that exalts yourself, we pray on the street corners. That's everything the Pharisees are doing. They remove the need and the revelation of Christ. So the law is good and holy. We have to understand that. The law is good and it is holy. It is perfect. Paul calls the law in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 3, I won't go into it, the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation. Whoa actually calls the Old Testament that. The ministry means to serve someone. It means it served them, it condemned, every time they thought about it, it served them, it condemned them. And that's why actually Paul said to Timothy, all scripture is God breathed and is useful. Why? Because Paul wrote 2 Corinthians 3 with him. Uh, Timothy wrote it with Paul. So he has a young man who's being taught by someone else saying the Old Testament is a ministry of death and ministry of condemnation. Says that in 2 Corinthians 3. Go read it if you don't believe me. So Timothy might have moved away from the Old Testament scriptures. And so Paul writes his last letter saying, Young man, Timothy, come. No, no, no. It's useful. It's still God. Does that make sense? So, what does the Bible say the law came to do? Because we need to know that. Now, I'm going to run through this real quick. Get ready. Get ready. All right. Number one. The Bible says in Romans 7, it says it in many places, I just gave a few scriptures, the law came to reveal sin, it gives knowledge of sin. That's why God didn't judge them from sin from Adam to Abraham, because there was no law, there was no do not. So, I would not have known sin except through the law, Romans 7, by the law is knowledge of sin. The law second, the law brings sin to life. Whoa, you see that in a child, don't do this, that's what I want to do. Before, they weren't thinking about it. They weren't. If I say, don't think of a pink elephant. Pink elephant. Pink elephant. Okay. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, that's the law, produced in me all manner of evil desire. All of a sudden, something changed within me because apart from the law, sin was dead. It's a big scripture. Are you guys with me? The law made sin increase. Whoa. I love this scripture because it really messes with real religion. In religion in, in a bad way, religiousness. The law made sin increase. It magnified sin. Romans 5. Moreover, the law entered that the offense or trespass or sin might increase. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. But the, God gave the law to actually make them sin more. Oh, people don't like that. That's what the Bible says. <laughs> Not because he enjoys sin. They needed to see there's nothing of yourself that you can do to remove this issue. The law, actually Romans 7 says it too. Has then what is good, the law, become death to me? Ministry of death? Certainly not. 
But sin, that it might appear sin, so we can see what it is, was producing death. What does it mean by that? What is the wages of sin? Death. death. So what is a wage? Something you earn. So every day they were getting up and living out, and every day their life was earning death. That sucks. Okay? It's not fun. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me. Through what is, is good, that's the law, so that sin through the commandment, through the law, might become exceedingly sinful. Making it worse and worse. I think I'm painting a picture. I hope. The law places people under the curse. Oh, for as many as of the works of the law are under the curse. But Christ has redeemed us. You were born on the earth with an inheritance in nature. You are born under the law as your tutor, the Bible says. You are born under the curse of the law. It's a bleak situation. Really it is. And then number six, the law makes us sin conscious, which I won't get into except it forced them to be thinking all day of sin. So instead of waking up like we read in 2 Corinthians 5 and living to God, they wake up and live not to sin. I wake up, this is what I mustn't do, this is what I mustn't do, this is what I mustn't do, this is what I'm... And so that's what I do, that's what I do, that's what I do, that's what I do. I've seen this religious kill people. I wake up with what I must not do. Thereby doing what? Everything we just read. Strengthening sin. Because that's a law, aren't you? Stirring up sin. Increasing sin. Bringing sin to life. And further and exceedingly revealing sin. Hello? Who's experienced this? I hope someone. Otherwise, I'm all by myself. Friends, that's not God's original intention. That's not what God desired before the fall. That's not. But he had to do that to reveal, this is my demand for fellowship. You have to be righteous with my righteousness. And then it gives the law. There's no way you can do it. I'll read you quickly something here. In Deuteronomy uh, 27, when it says, we are under the curse of the law. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law. Amen. That's Deuteronomy 27. That is referenced. The notes say this. The twelfth curse, there's a bunch of curses in Deuteronomy 27. The twelfth curse was the all-encompassing one. A curse was on anyone who broke any part of the law. Full stop. The Lord expected not only full submission to the law, but also a love for him by demand, which we know cannot happen because it increases sin. Paul quoted this verse in Galatians 3 to emphasize the impossibility of keeping the law. What we read, the law brings about a curse. That's the situation. That's the situation we're born under. That's the situation the Hebrews were under. It's not good. And so we get self-righteous. We say, well, I I know there's grace, but I don't really want to use grace because I don't want to abuse it. Friend, You will destroy yourself that way. (laughs) Romans 3. Should we read some good news? And then I'm going to go on to one more point after this and we'll see how we go. Because the next point after this makes it clear. Verse 19 to 26. I think I put it up. Fantastic. Now we know 
Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that's Jewish, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. I don't have the time for this, but Romans 1 and 2 is basically showing you that there's a moral law that God has actually imprinted his presence into creation. Do you know that? He imprinted his very DNA and presence into creation. So there's part of the, the law of the mind, moral law, is it's built to search for God. And Romans 1 and 2 basically says, so you're all guilty, unsaved, Jewish, Gentile, doesn't matter. They all need help. Start again. Sorry. Now that we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Whether saved, unsaved, Jew, Gentile, Greek, doesn't matter. Why? <laughs> because they could not live up to the law. Even a person with moral law is not empowered to live up to it. Even a person who doesn't know sees the testifying of God in nature. That's what Romans 1 and 2 says. Then it says this, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is knowledge of sin. There's another verse for it. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. It's a stunning sentence. The righteousness apart from the law, and not just our righteousness, God's righteousness. Righteousness in right standing. Of God, apart from law, any form of law, is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and upon, or on all who believe. For there is no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory. I've heard many believers, they quote that. They make a mistake. And then they're like, well, you know, all, fall short, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory. That's, that's not the context of that verse at all. The context of that verse is talking that there's no one who could do it. That's before salvation. That's the context. All have sinned, no matter how much good, how much self-righteousness, how much obedience to any type of law, moral law, Jewish law, all of it, it's short. All have fallen short. For there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified now freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as propitiation by His blood. Through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance... God passed over the sins that were previously committed. Why? Because there wasn't a law. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just. Remember, he cannot deny his integrity. So he has to do it in a way that he's, he is still just. And the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Friends, few points. There is no law. All the world may become guilty for, before God. There is no law you can live up to that to make you righteous. doesn't exist. That's what it's trying to say. And then it says, Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. That's a stunning statement. You know, there's no other religion. I'll read it just so that it's better. There's no other belief or religion or however you want to say that in the world that offers or extends salvation through death into eternity. All the way through death into eternity. It doesn't offer that apart from external work of self-effort or standard of morality. There is not another one anywhere. We have that. Hallelujah. Uh, it's true. We have that by faith. The gospel, which we'll get into, is not morality. It's not even salvation. It's the power of God to salvation based on what Jesus has done, not you. There is nothing else like it. Then it says, 
For there is no difference, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I looked up all those words in the Greek and I wrote a little definition for you. Can I read it to you? This is what it means if you put it more in our language. In the view of God and in his opinion, a person of excellent moral law, even blameless by the Jewish law, has still missed the mark. That's what sin means, to miss the mark. Has still missed the mark and will always fall short and be found wanting in their sufficiency to restore what happened in the garden. In order, you know, to grant them access to God's presence and become partakers of his divine nature. That's what 2 Peter says. But we've been justified freely by grace. That's good news. That's good news. In the place of the law, we receive grace. Justified just means declared righteous. We receive grace. Whom God set forth as propitiation. So, what is the gospel? I'm going to do what is the gospel and then an example. The gospel is good news. You know the word evangel or evangelism? The word evangel, you know where it comes from. If you've been to the discovery course, you know what I'm going to say. Evangels used to be the people who used to run two battles between two kingdoms. And evangels were the person who would run from the one kingdom to the other to declare that there's been victory. Which is kind of a big deal because it means the people in the kingdom, all the, the women and children who were there inside the physical kingdom, were waiting. What's going to happen? And I'm sorry to be just open. Are we going to be taken as slaves? Sex slaves? Bondage slaves? Because if they lose, that's what happens. And they take our food, our kingdom, our money, our women, our children, everything. Slaves, you're slaves. So the evangel would come running, waving a certain flag, blowing a certain trumpet, declaring, good news, good news, victory, victory, you are no longer slaves. That's what an evangel is. Friends, the gospel is the proclamation of something that Jesus already won. It's the proclamation of good news. It is not advice on how to live. Please hear me. If I go to the bank, and I've always given this example, and they, I go to the bank manager to talk about how to manage my money, that's a good idea. That's not good news. If I go to the bank, because it's still, I still have the same amount of money. If I go to the bank and, someone, and I go there to do that and someone's put $10 billion in my account, that's good news. <laughs> That's really good news, okay? That's the gospel. It's not, this is the gospel, now do this, 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 this. No, friends. The gospel is a declaration of a victory won. You did nothing, he did everything. That is the gospel. We have to understand that. We have to understand that. It is the power of God, the Bible says, unto salvation. The proclamation of the victory of what Jesus has won, just the proclamation inherently carries God's power to change, to regenerate a person's spirit and make them alive unto God. That's what it carries. Now, the gospel saves you from sin and death. I'm going to go through this real quick because I want to get to something else. You guys look good. Great. The gospel saves you from sin and death. It's the word salvation, we're going to throw out some fancy words, you don't need to remember them. The word salvation is broken into, it means three different things. It means justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification is what happens when you get saved, which we'll go over. Instant. It's extremely powerful. Sanctification, people think now, that's how you live out your Christianity and I've got to change and I've got to do better, which it's not that. And glorification is what happens when Jesus comes back. All of that is full salvation. That is salvation. You're saved and it gets better. 
That's pretty much the best way to say it. You're saved, and it gets better. Because when he comes back, everything changes, friends. Immortality puts on immortality. That's what the Bible says. And we are clothed with our heavenly dwelling. And we see him in clear picture as a man looks in a mirror face to face. Everything shifts. And so the, the justification removes the penalty of sin. The death penalty, gone. Sanctification is the sp- sp- uh, sin's power in your present life, living life. And there's a partnership between you and God for that. Glorification is there's no presence of sin at all. There's no one here who knows what that's like. God will even take it out of creation. That's why the Bible says creation groans for the sons of God to be manifest. Why? Because he will snatch the law of entropy back. No decay. Everything that's shifted, he will remove. And we'll have a new heaven and a new earth. Yeah? It's good news. It's good news. So, justification, the penalty of sin, life for death. We get life for death. And I was going to go read you those verses, but I won't. I'll, I'll just quote the one. Therefore, being justified, we have peace with God. I'm going to read it to you because some of you are like, no, nope, can't say that. It says that. It's Romans 5.1. Having been justified by faith, not by law, not by works, by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access. We have access. We have access. Can we say access? Okay. It says it here too, in Ephesians 2. It says, And he came and produced peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him, Jesus, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Justified. Means just as if I never sinned. That's another way to say it. Just as if I never It means declared righteous. It actually means the one on whom God approves. (laughs) Justified. You stand in peace with God, in fellowship with God, with full access. Some of this, I wrote this, and I'm not saying this to boast. Please hear my heart, because this is so in my heart. I wrote this little list in about two minutes, just out of my head. And it's much more, but just as an example, how sure you can be places you in Christ. This basically happens instantly when you get saved. Heavenly citizenship, God's own righteousness himself, peace with God, access to our Father, the favor of God. That's what grace means. Unmerited favor. Favor upon you because of the merits of another. A new identity, which is a child of God, which actually gives you delegated authority. Invitation to intimacy, a guarantee of what's to come. A new husband, a new root system. There's many more. That is instant. The important thing to understand is none of that can change. None of that changes. Nothing will change of those things. Whether you feel it, whether you believe it, whether you like it, whether you use it or not, that will not change. Now, the problem that I experience or that I encounter is when it comes to the power of sin, this is sanctification, this is where people go weird. I'm being real with you. You know what sanctification actually means? The state of proper functioning. So if I have a pen on my desk, it's still a pen. When I use it to write, it's sanctified. It's in its state of proper functioning. The purpose of that is to explain and to understand that you cannot walk out your sanctification by yourself. It takes an outside source to do it in your heart. Even that, he does. With you, but he does. 
People say, well, you work, you, know, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yeah, comma, for it is God who works in me to will and to act and to do. Yes. Comma, big deal. Sanctification. The Bible says in Galatians 1.13, Grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. That's this age, friends. There's a present evil age and an age to come. Part of what happens when we get saved is that we are called to be free from everything that surrounds us. And he says that, but he doesn't take us from here. Okay, that's sanctification. It's very important to understand, and you can't do that by yourself. You cannot do that by yourself. I want to quickly give you a little principle. Can you guys give me some grace? What's the point? I had to explain something of law because, friends, until we start to get grounded in that stuff, it will not change your approach to God. It will not. Please hear me. It will not. You will go and you will still guilt and I'm bad and I'm horrible and sorry. And It won't remove guilt. It won't change the core of your relationship with the Lord. It just will not. And so I took years to study, I, years, to, to be sure. So much so that when I used to foul up, people say, "That's how can you do that, friends? It's the thing that brought victory. Every time I'd make a mistake, even if it was the same mistake, as I would even do it or after whatever it was, I'd say, God, I'm righteous. I'm in you. I'm your son. I'm in right standing with you. I have peace with you. It wasn't, I'm so bad, I'm so horrible. Because that didn't bring any victory. Grace empowers. The principle that I learned over all those years was one simple thing. In order for sanctification to have the power of sin move from your life, to just live life, you know what you focus on? Not trying to do that. That was that, that simple. For that to have power, I learned focus on what's already happened. So I'll say this, but it sounds fancy and I want to confuse. For sanctification to take place, I have to focus on justification. People say, well, give me a scripture for that. Oh, there's many. I'll just give you a few quick. Romans 6. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. That's living free from sin. That's sanctification. But present yourselves as to God as being alive from the dead and your members, that's your body, as instruments of righteousness. Then how to do that? That tells us how. For sin shall not have dominion over you. You're not under law, but under grace. So what's the point? In order for that to take place, remember what's already been happened. Focus on that, and that'll take place naturally. Is this making sense? Can I give you another one? Romans 5. By one man's offense, death reigned. That's Adam. Death reigned on the earth through sin. Death reigned through the one. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Do you want to reign in life? You want to live unto God and do all the things that good, you know, I see that person, they're so much better. You want to do that? Focus on what's been done. Not what you're trying to do. What's been done. The gift of righteousness. <laughs> and the abundance of grace. That you have favor. I know it's been a little long. I'm going to take five more minutes. Because what grace does, friends, is it reveals the heart. Do you know that? For love to exist, there has to be choice. When you set somebody free, genuinely set them free, it will reveal their heart. For example, 
It's like I take, I heard it like this many years ago and I've always used this example. If I take a flashlight into the attic and I shine the flashlight, all of a sudden I see all the dust, yeah? And there's lots. I don't say, hmm, look how much dust this flashlight created. Dust was already there. The flashlight reveals it. Grace reveals the heart. When you tell someone, no matter what you do, your positioning God doesn't change. Some people say, don't say that, then they'll run around doing crazy things. You know what? Maybe they will. But grace will teach them if they focus on who they are. Grace will teach them to say no to sin, but it's not instant. It's a school and it takes time. But grace will change the very desires of your heart. Anyone through fear, if I do this, God's going to punish, which is bad theology. Anyone through fear can behave for a while. Grace changes you. And so the way it changes you, it actually reveals your own heart. You're like, I'm going to run and do all these things. All you now know is what your heart is. Hello? Yeah, interesting. Grace and our new husband. I'm just going to quickly read this to you. The Bible says, and I won't read you the scriptures, please go read them. In Romans 7 and Isaiah 54, the Bible says that there's two husbands, law and Jesus. The law and Jesus Christ. We have to understand, this is the type of law that Romans 7 describes in many other scriptures. This is the, this is, remember you're born under the curse of the law? Are you with me? This is the husband that you're born with. Okay. This is the worst husband in the world. This is the husband of the law, which every person unsaved lives under this. Even with moral law, even if they were Jewish, it actually is more for that. If there's some form of religion... Law is not just that. It's any rules that, and regulations that dictate relationship. Okay? It says this. This husband is designed to point out our faults. And he's never wrong. It's always right in what it says. This husband, the law, never makes a mistake. Not one time, not ever. It itself never makes a mistake. This husband never dies. Ever. Because it's the law. It's of God. It's holy. Jesus said, I never came to abolish the law, but to fulfill. So it never dies. You are not allowed to divorce him because it's against the law. After pointing out our faults, he doesn't empower you to overcome. Instead, he makes it far more difficult. That's the law. It stirs up sin. So every time he points it out, it makes it harder. He never lifts a finger to help you. And he, but yet he will not remove the demand of perfection. He is employed by someone who desires your death. That's what the Bible says. It says the system of death reigns on the earth and employed sin. When you're born on the earth, sin is called your master. And so it has an employee, which is sin, and that is your master when you're born on the earth because you're a slave to the one you obey, and you obey it naturally because that's your nature. And so what happens is the sin, the slave master, takes a whoop something good, which is God. That's what the Bible says. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. And every time you mess up, he whoops you with the law. See what you did? So you have a master and you have a husband. Sin, your master, holds your husband in his hand and beats you with it. Hello? Who knows what I'm talking about? Who experiences this? Whose Christianity is like, yeah, I've experienced this. Let's be honest. I want to see. Okay, thank you. Great. Picture this. When you do what your master, sin, wants, he holds you on a chain. When you, so there's a person here, sin, he's holding, he's got the law, and he's holding you. When you do what he wants, he whoops you with the law. Look what you did. 
You're useless. You should be better than this. The accuser of the brethren. He whoops you. Wow. With God's law. When you finally get it right and you do what your husband demands, the law, then your master, the sin, comes and speaks in your ear. No matter what you do, it doesn't matter. Then the sin comes and speaks. You think you can keep this up? Remember when you did this? Don't you just rather want to do this? No matter what you do. And that's how many Christians live like that. Because they don't have understanding of this principle. So simple. I know it's taken time. I'm actually not sorry. Friends, it's so important. The other husband is Jesus. The Bible says, Jesus says, what are we going to do about this? I can't just take that husband away because that changes God's integrity, which destroys them all. So he says, I'll do a mighty tricky thing. I'll come and I'll die. And when they believe in me, they are placed in Christ. Now they're in me. And so we identify with his death, with his burial and resurrection, meaning what? That's what the Bible says in Romans 7. It says, we have been now dead to the law through the body of Christ. So because we've died, now we are made, that marriage to the law is made null and void legally because we identify with the death of Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ liveth in me. So that marriage to the law is cancelled legally. God maintains his integrity. He is still just, and now he can be a justifier. What is it like to be married to Jesus? These are all scriptures. I just, we ran out of time, which is my own fault. He died so that in him we could be free from the marriage. He is also your advocate. So every time you make a mistake, he legally stands in court saying, paid, paid, paid. Very different to your previous master. Paid, 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 paid. And not only paid, and like everyone knows you did it, but like you got off because you know someone, right? No, it's paid and declared perfectly innocent. He gives you a righteousness you could never earn. He reminds us of who we really are. Because the Bible says your husband is your maker. He knows you better than you know yourself. So when you make mistakes, he says, that's not who you are. He loves you. <laughs> that's the husband you run to. When we make a mistake and the enemy tries to come in and start that same old business, your husband, Jesus, stands in the way and says, don't touch my bride. That's what he does. Don't touch my bride. And he says things to you like, I love you. You're still right with God. You are still at peace with God. Let's look again at who you really are. Let's look at your new identity. I took care of this legally. And I'm not angry with you. You and I, we're at peace. That empowers you. Amen. We'll leave it there. We're going to go on a little journey together. And I know there was a long message. Are you guys okay? Yeah. Friends, the foundation, thank you. The foundation of this stuff, it's doctrine. It set me more free, honestly, than any power, and I've had many real genuine power encounters. This changed me. Because I know in my heart, I'm good. Me and God, we're good. Can we stand?